everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Kristen Paulo from Protect Life Michigan. I forget exactly when I first met Kristen doing pro-life activism, but I've had the privilege of speaking at many of their conferences over the years. Their team in, in Michigan has just exploded from a handful of people to a team all the way across the state, working on campuses to change hearts, change minds, and save lives. And because we so often look at campuses as a particularly hostile environment for pro-lifers, I was hoping to introduce all of you to some of the amazing work being done on campuses and some of the phenomenal results that we've seen as a result. So without further introduction, meet Kristen Paul from Protect Life Michigan. All right, Kristen. Uh, first, why don't we start off by telling uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got involved in the pro-life movement, and how you ended up doing pro-life work as a full-time career. Absolutely. So I got involved uh, around the time that Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. I was a high school student and um, was really appalled by his policies and his beliefs surrounding abortion and just felt this urgency that I had to do something. Um, And so I got involved in campaigning and knocking doors, right to life kind of pulled me in and started me um, working with students. But it was interesting in the midst of all of that, I really felt like abortion was this giant problem and that I was just a mere kid. Like, what am I going to do against a billion dollar abortion industry. I'm like 15, right? And that was this utter sense of doom. (laughs) Like, I can't do anything about it. I'm going to be squashed like an ant by um, everything that's happening in the world. And thank God was able to connect with a lot of amazing pro-lifers who really built me up and helped me see that there is a lot of hope when it comes to this issue. And surprisingly, young people um, have an incredible opportunity to make a difference. Um, So that's how I got started. So maybe uh, give us the trajectory from um, getting involved, starting off in high school, and then ending up running a student organization. How many years have you been running this organization in Michigan now? Since 2013, I think. Yeah, I thought it had been it had been almost 10 years. So maybe give us maybe give us that trajectory so people understand how you went from a high school student who's passionate about the issue and really waking up to the issue to somebody who now runs an organization that seeks to essentially replicate your experience in the minds and hearts of thousands of students. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I got involved and felt like I had no ability to make any kind of meaningful impact in this issue. And it was actually this organization, Protect Life Michigan, that came alongside me as a high school student and then as a college student started mentoring me and pouring into me. Back then, they just had a board of directors, no staff. So their ability to make an impact was pretty limited, but they just poured so much into me to show me what I could do. They really trained me up so that when I went on to college, I was able to start a pro-life group at my university um, and got heavily involved in doing pro-life outreach and activism events in my community. 
Um, so I did a little bit of that, but at the same time, really thought that God was calling me to the political field. So I went to the University of Michigan. I got a degree in political science, went out to Washington, D.C., did a little bit of work there, um, ran some campaigns here in Michigan. And interestingly, through that, God really showed me that for some people, I think politics is the big picture and pro-life work is a little piece of that, right? But for me, pro-life was going to be a big the big picture and politics be a little piece of that. And so I really felt called after working in politics to work full-time in the pro-life movement, but I was so scared of fundraising that it kind of held me back for a couple of years. I was afraid to take that plunge. I didn't want to have to ask people to money, uh, to give money to support this pro-life work. And the organization that wanted to hire me, Protect Life Michigan, was pretty poor. <laughs> they had like three grand in the bank that was supposed to last all year. Um, but I remember the day uh, out of college, I was newly married. I came home uh, from work and I told my husband, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to do pro-life work full time. And he was like, uh, no, you're not because you're the breadwinner and that's not going to work. Like we're going to have to sell the house. Um, but I figured it out. And I think what God has shown me through all these years is like, if you really care about doing a good job and whatever it is, he's called you to do, you surround yourself with good people. You can learn how to do it. Like he's going to equip you for what he calls you to. So it was around 2013 that I went full time with Protect Life Michigan. I was their very first staff member and I felt called to them because they were doing something with young people, which wasn't happening in a lot of places in our movement. Like I just saw it as this big gap. We're working awesome on legislative things and we're nailing it with pregnancy centers and so many pieces were coming together, but the student branch specifically in Michigan was being neglected. And so I just came on and said, I'm going to help build this up. And today we've got about 20 staff members working all over the state. We're on every university's campus. We're in like over 20 high schools. It's just grown like crazy um, since then. So you guys have always been one of my favorite groups, and I think because there's a lot of overlap in the way we at the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform think and the way you guys think at Protect Life Michigan, and then, of course, uh, Created Equal, we've profiled them on this podcast as well. Um, we have a lot of overlap with them, but there's going to be a lot of people uh, who are listening to this and thinking, I'm going to need some more details on how you grew by 20 times since 2013. <laughs> if it was a single staff member fundraising her own salary to 20 mm -hmm. staff members across the state, uh, I've been privileged to speak at, at a couple of, of your conferences, and I've known some of your staff members now for eight or nine years um, since since I first met them, I'm not sure uh, when I first met you, but that was a long, like longer ago than I'm willing to admit at this stage. So explain <laughs> how you guys sort of exploded in growth like this, because uh, for a couple of reasons, it seems unlikely that a pro-life organization that's taking a stand specifically on campuses about one of the most controversial issues in the country and having to actually go to their friends and loved ones to fundraise their own salary. That sort of growth seems unrealistic when you, when you list all of those factors alongside it. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I want to say is there's a reason that you can tell that we think kind of similarly. And that's because we're newbies to this and we have been learning from you guys like CCBR and 
created equal are role models for us. You guys have done the legwork of figuring out what works, what makes a difference. And so we've just been trying to absorb as much of that knowledge as possible and learn and grow. So I'm glad that you can see that in us. Like it is you guys that have taught us so much, but yeah, we, um, like I said, we had nothing back in 2013. We had a board of directors and like no budget. We didn't have any volunteers. I think the growth is for a few reasons. Um, the first is we have really been committed to a support raising model. Like all of us are pro-life missionaries. And so we've been able to grow and develop our team through that, um, which is hard. It's a struggle, as I'm sure you know, to find people who are willing to lay down their life in that way um, and support raise. But that's helped a lot and has really made it so that budget is not a concern here. Like whatever God calls us to do, we're going to, we know that we will find the money to do it and make it happen, which is a great thing. Um, but I think the second piece is we've really tried to lead with our why in everything that we do. Why are we fighting the injustice of abortion? What does that mean? Why does it matter? And that is so attractive to young people because they have this heart to create a difference. They want their life here on earth to matter. And we're giving them a tangible way that they can do that. Um, tangible things that they can do on on campus to either see in an instant someone's mind change about abortion or to see someone go from um, considering abortion to deciding to choose life. That's a really powerful thing. I think like we're giving people purpose. Um, and that's part of the reason that I think we're building the movement that we are. I'm sure you see that same thing in Canada. On that note, actually, do you remember the very first time uh, you had a conversation about abortion with somebody and they changed their mind and became pro-life? Yeah, it probably wasn't too long ago because I wasn't very good at that for a long time. But, you know, what's interesting is um, if I can just be honest with you, for a really long time, we were afraid to put ourselves out there and do things like that. Like Protect Life Michigan was an organization that I think had adopted a model that a lot of other organizations use where we did fun, fluffy things like cupcakes for life. We'd hand out cupcakes on campus and with a little sign that said cupcakes for life, which, you know, great, very positive, does not change any minds. And a few years ago, we started to ask what do we need to do to be as effective as possible? And what does that mean? For us, it's playing the long game of trying to change as many hearts and minds as possible. And so we knew that meant more outreach. Um, so that started with us having to get trained in how to do it because I had done things like I did the genocide awareness project in college quite a few times, um, but was really scared of it. And also scared of the fact that when you make a decision to choose effective outreach like that, there's going to be a lot of people that don't support it. And we have certainly, you know, lost people who are not a big fan of the fact that we use abortion victim photography or other more like um, in your face types of outreach, as they would say. But that all goes to say that um, my first heart change was probably only a handful of years ago. Now, since then, we've changed thousands and thousands of minds on abortion, not just me, but hundreds of students all over the state. But it's been this growth that we've really had to come into the last few years, because frankly, we were too scared not that long ago. <laughs> this is a new thing. No, it's interesting uh, that you say that, because for me, actually, when I was in, in university, I was kind of torn in a, in a couple of different directions, and I was very attracted to, to politics, and I, and, I, and I did a lot with student politics at the campus I was on. And the pro-life movement kind of diverted me 
And it was because my first experiences were on a campus. I got invited to join uh, CCBR uh, in Florida doing the Genocide Awareness Project, which for listeners who, who aren't aware, is a project that compares the genocide of abortion to other historic injustices. You set it up in the middle of a campus. You discuss it with all these students going by. And like on the face of it, you know, it's controversial. It's graphic. It's on a university campus, which is generally a stronghold of pro-choice, pro-abortion sentiment. And so you wouldn't expect this to be an uplifting and fulfilling experience for somebody who's engaging with pro-life activism for the first time. But I, I remember changing a mind. It was a, a, a young girl, actually, 18, 19, on like first couple of hours out in front of the display. And it was one of the most empowering experiences I'd ever had because I realized, wait a second, I can use a very simple set of arguments, plus the visual evidence of what abortion actually is, and somebody's mind can be changed. And, and because her mind changed, this means that in all likelihood, she won't have an abortion in the future. And it's not like it was easy, because, you know, we were in front of a display that was so big, we had to set it up with, you know, iron poles and, and, and sandbags. But at the same time, it was a lot easier than I had been led to believe, you know, over, over the over the previous 20 years. And and, and it's it's interesting because campuses are such strongholds uh, and like they're infamous in conservative circles of of, of being sort of a, a maelstrom of progressive thought. At, at one, one day at Florida State University, we had, I think, 800 protesters show up, um, which I, it, it was the largest protest that even the veterans there had ever seen. And I, I kind of honestly thought it was a blast um, because so many people came over to the display to have discussions with us because protesters think that you know they're actually by protesting hampering your effectiveness in reality they just create a bit of a ruckus and everybody on campus comes over to see what they're talking about and a large number of them stick around to have conversations and so we end up reaching and converting more people because they've showed up to yell about oh well you know slogans that have been around since the 60s or 70s so what has your experience on campus has been like is one of the things i wanted to do in this conversation um, is, is to actually kind of share with the listeners what it's like on campuses and that some of the most unlikely mission fields for the pro-life movement are actually uh, the most rewarding and beneficial in terms of what happens when you actually go out there and do the outreach and that by declining to do outreach on these campuses because of the ruckus that progressive activists make, we're actually ceding territory to them that can be taken if we do our job properly. That's right. Yeah, there's such an opportunity on college campuses because you have all of these young people who are packed into this small geographical space. You can reach tens of thousands in a couple of days, for example, with you know images, the reality of abortion. You can have hundreds of conversations. And I think for the most part, students are very open. We have so much more success on campus than in other spaces because they are there to try to figure out what they believe about the world. And they're exploring all these different things. And for the most part, that's a really good thing. Of course, there's always that student who's in philosophy 101 who thinks they know everything. Um, but for the most part, students are so open to dialogue that there's a lot of fruit there. And the reality of the situation is also pretty heavy because what I know after years of working on campus is that if we are not there sharing the pro-life message with these students, no one else is, which means that many times they might go through four years of college without ever being exposed to either the reality of abortion or the pro-life argument. So they're accepting what their professors are saying or what they're hearing from Planned Parenthood. 
parenthood on TikTok and Instagram and never having to be confronted with the reality or the truth. And so I think the pro-life movement has a great responsibility to be there, to share the truth with these students, because when we do, they start to see that maybe they don't have all of the answers. And, you know, there's a lot of minds that we change right on the spot because they have that realization. I think there's a whole lot more that we don't even know about because they go home and wrestle with this. Like, I can't reconcile what I heard today with this bumper sticker slogan that I've expected or I've accepted for the last few years. Now, that's a really good point you make, because one of the experiences we've had uh, on returning to the same campuses um, year after year is, is we'll get to hear about an impact that we made a couple of years back. Like I remember we had one girl come up to us at a campus and this was in Florida again, uh, who said that she'd been one of the big debaters a previous year and and didn't like us and still didn't like us actually. Um, But because the picture stuck in her head, uh, when she she found herself pregnant, she couldn't have an abortion, even though she still called herself pro-choice. I'm like, I don't really care what you call yourself, right? You didn't have an abortion, which was the point. We had another uh, one too, who was a nursing student actually, um, who had debated four or five of us actually in one day, just angry, thought we were all jerks, couldn't believe that we were showing these pictures. But the way she put it really stuck with me. She said, the pictures followed me home. And once she got home, she Googled an abortion procedure video. She started looking at all these different things. And she came back the next year just to let us know that um, she was so glad we'd been there, that she changed her mind. She'd become pro-life. She was talking to her friends. And so you get to find out like years later that, you know, there's children are alive because you were on campus, that people whose minds didn't change on the spot, because it's, it takes a lot of humility that most undergrads, including myself at the time, <laughs> did not have uh, to admit you're wrong on the spot, you know, to come out of the gate yelling and shouting and, and being arrogant about your position and then realizing through discussion that your position was actually the wrong one. And so sometimes I actually think that more people change their minds after the fact, then change their mind on the spot. Although we actually do see many people change their mind on the spot as well. So what was it like? So let's, let, let, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. There's, there's like you starting off full-time and you've got to figure out how to do stuff on campuses and you've got to recruit other people. What did that journey for lack of a better word look like in terms of the expansion, in terms of sitting down with your team and, and strategizing through which projects you were going to do? So what's the evolution of Protect Life Michigan like for those uh, who aren't familiar with your organization? Like I said, a handful of years ago, we really weren't doing any outreach at all. We had students on all of these campuses who met bi-weekly or weekly to learn pro-life apologetics so that they could do nothing with it. (laughs) Like It was like 10 pro-life kids at a school sitting around in the same classroom every week. And I'm sure they were thinking to themselves, like, what are we doing? (laughs) Like, are we wasting time just sitting here? And so like I said, we we started to strategize about how are we going to reach more people? We knew that came with a game plan of we wanted to try to encourage every college group to do outreach at least every other week. Now we want them to do it every week. And we use a lot of different methods. So we have some tabling displays that just have like a very basic sign that says should abortion remain 
legal and people can come up and vote. Or we have questions like, is abortion a human injustice or a reproductive right? And then, of course, we have abortion victim photography and other things like that. And we cycle through these so that, you know, there's there's students who are so mad about AVP that they're never going to have a conversation with us. But maybe they're going to come talk to us at one of these other tabling events. So we, we use a lot of different strategies. But for a long time, we really shied away from abortion victim photography because it scared us and our students hated that they didn't want to use it. Um, but we started just running the numbers. So we would have groups like Create Equal come in and we would track statistically how many people we reached, how many minds were changed, how many people protested, whatever. We started running all of these numbers and a big like pivot point for us, Jonathan, was we did this uh, display all the time called Cemetery of the Innocents, where we put up 920 flags. Each one represents a thousand abortions. There's 920,000 done every year in America. And great display. It's, it's really well done. It reaches a lot of people with at least the magnitude. But we had this up for like three days at Michigan's largest school. And like one person changed their mind about abortion. And in those same days, Create Equal is here doing outreach. And I think they had 120 students who confirmed on the spot that they changed their minds. And we're like, okay, it's try, it's time to change the tactics a little bit. Like we need to change our strategy and start implementing more of this because it works. And I think students, again, they really want to make a difference. They don't want to waste time with things that don't do anything. Um, and so we, we would have Seth Dreyer in pretty often to talk about why we use these images and how it works and why it's effective and kind of talk through it with students. And eventually we, we went from like, every student we worked with being opposed to this method to now it's it's done on pretty much every university's campus in the state in just like three years. Um, and that has really allowed us to reach thousands more people, change hundreds of additional minds because we're going after what is most effective. We don't care about being the most popular club on campus. I always tell students, we're not the pillow fight club. Like not everyone's gonna love you, <laughs> but we have to go over what's gonna save the most lives. And this is one of those things that does. I think uh, like focusing on effectiveness is obviously essential because if we believe lives are hanging in the balance, which we do, well, that has to be one of our key standards that anything that's, that, that's moral uh, and effective should be pursued. And I always find the, the debate back and forth about the effectiveness of the images really boils down to whether or not you've tried it because nobody who's ever done one of our projects with us still thinks they're ineffective. They may not prefer it. Who, who does prefer it, right? Like who enjoys uh, having people get angry at them. Anybody who doesn't enjoy, anybody who enjoys people getting angry at them probably shouldn't be doing the project because it's, it's not like, we're not out there to troll people. We're out there to actually change their minds. But the history of social reform indicates that, that as Greg Cunningham says, liked reformers are rarely effective and effective reformers are rarely liked, right? Like there's, I actually had this conversation at one presentation on our strategy to, to a group of donors where one of them said, um, but past movements that used imagery, you know, were very popular. Just think of Martin Luther King Jr. And I had to break the news to him that MLK got shot. Um, because a lot of people just look at how popular Wilberforce and MLK and all these great heroes are now and don't realize that they had to go through a period where they were physically assaulted, walked with bodyguards, everybody hated them to get to the point where it was 
was actually acceptable to tell the truth because the truth in a culture where lies are the standard is not going to be popular. And so I, I do always wonder when people say, well, this just makes people mad at us. I always wonder how do they expect us to approach a controversial issue without any controversy? That just doesn't seem to make a, a lot of sense to me, but I love what you said there about, about testing the results, because for us, we always say that as well. We don't use imagery because we want to, or because we used it last year and the year before. We only do it because it works. However, if we found a method of outreach that was more effective than AVP, we would switch tomorrow as long as we could prove it through data, through anecdotal conversations, because it's not about it being moral and right to use these images. It's about these images being the most moral and effective means to bring an end to abortion. So one of the things I wanted to, to kind of share with our listeners, because again, uh, if, if, you're, if you're in sort of the conservative media ecosystem, the only thing you hear about campuses are uh, how insane everybody is. And you and I could spend three hours on this podcast talking about all the insane things we've heard and seen on campuses. I think the best one I saw was, a, was people dressed up as human genitalia. And I have no idea how they got the costumes because they, they, we showed up on campus and they just showed up wearing these costumes. So they had to have had them like at the ready in their lockers because they didn't know oh. we were coming, which is so, you know, we could, we could talk about stories like that. And that's why I think it's hard to convince people sometimes that doing work on campuses is worth it. So maybe just share uh, two things. One, um, what recruitment and mobilization of pro-lifers on campus is like, and two, what their reaction response is like when they realize that they're not useless, that the debate isn't useless, and that they can actually affect a real change during this really formative period of their lives and the lives of their peers. There are a lot of young people who were raised in Christian or Catholic households and they were they grew up with these values and so part of what we do is just try to recruit them to get involved about 25 percent of campus we estimate is pro-life but they're not doing anything about it a very few number of people are doing something about it so our first step is to engage them and i mean we use whatever methods possible like we have signs that we walk around campus with that say uh, are you pro-life? Join us. We go to recruitment fairs. We just try to collect as many students as possible through networking and other means to try to grow these movements. And then once we bring them in and start teaching them how to talk about this, Jonathan, you've been so helpful in helping us articulate um, that, yes, you're not going to be popular, but what you're doing still matters and still makes a difference. And, and we share that with them because I think once it's spoken and you understand that, like, yeah, we can't approach a controversial issue without controversy. That makes sense. It, it creates this willingness, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go out and try it. I understand that it's not going to be easy, but it is going to be worth it. Um, and so that's how we, I think, get them involved, bring them a little bit deeper. Um, and then from there, what was your second question? <laughs> Talking to me. Second question is just, uh, what kind of impact do they have on the campuses and what's their response to having an impact? Yeah, thank you. Um, so students are, like I said, doing outreach every single week. They're having conversations with people who are pro-choice, sometimes radically pro-choice. I mean, like you said, they come up and protest or scream. I mean, I've been spit on on campus, all kinds of things. And those same people change their minds. 
I think when a student experiences that, it just creates this fire in you. You see the difference that you can make and it inspires a deeper level of commitment. None of us wanna go out and do hard things that don't result in anything, right? Like that is so not appealing to anyone, but this is a hard thing that does result in something. Um, I have so many stories from campus. There was a guy that I just recently spoke to, a college student who came up and was, 100% pro-choice. He said, there's no difference at any point in pregnancy. If, when, if you can kill it in the first trimester, you should be able to kill it in the third trimester for any reason at any time, whatever. And we had a five minute conversation where I walked through basically the human rights argument of I believe in human rights for all human beings. And if these are human beings, then this is a, a violation of their human rights. And he just had an on the spot complete change and walked away 100% pro-life. And there was a student shadowing me who, I don't know if she was totally bought into outreach before that, but afterwards was so bought in because that ability to see the difference that you're making is so important. I think this is why we're seeing so many students who they've been going to school for medical degrees or for accounting or whatever, and are willing to lay down a traditional career path to become pro-life missionaries, which sounds so crazy, but they want to be able to know that they've used their lives to make a difference in the world. And that's what the pro-life movement has to offer. We're making real change come to life. No, I'm glad you you put it the way that you did, because I, I've often said that one of, of the key pieces of evidence that the strategy works is that so many people are willing to lay down traditional careers and do this, right? When, when you're doing pro-life work, there's a pretty hard ceiling on, on salary. This is not a lucrative career. There are no Christmas bonuses. There are no big fat raises. Um, you know, the, you're working for a nonprofit doing work with the understanding that part of the reward you get from it is the change you're affecting on the ground. So unless a whole bunch of us are certifiably insane, and I'm sure there's a few of us that are, uh, there's there's no way that people would actually decide to do this full-time as a career if it wasn't making a difference, right? Even the trolls get sick of, of just making people angry at some point and are going to give up and go home and do something more productive with their lives. And so the fact that you've got 20 people on your team now indicates they're seeing something that's worth sacrificing for. I, I've gotten irritated before when people have said, oh, you sacrificed so much to join the pro-life movement. And I said, the pro-life movement has given me far more um, mm -hmm. than I've given it because it's been so incredibly rewarding. Uh, the things that I've gotten to see and I've gotten to experience are simply inaccessible to most people in traditional careers. And I, would, I wouldn't trade a minute of it, even, even the worst parts of it, because knowing that there are kids alive you know, because you went out there and then your work was blessed is, is really extraordinary when you sit down and think about it. And I always encourage activists to do that because pro-life activists often fixate on their failures. And they'll always remember that conversation that went south. They'll remember that clinic outreach where the woman thought like, they thought she was going to change her mind, but she went in anyways. And I've talked like people of like, you know, weeks of just agonizing over it's my fault when of course it's, it's not your fault. You did everything that you could um, and you have to you have to think about the children that were actually saved, especially when you're privileged as we are at CCBR, and I know um, you guys are as well to have like baby pictures of babies who were saved as a result of of outreach yeah. uh, and activism, which is is really one of the coolest things you'll ever experience. Uh, is when you get to actually um, see a picture of or meet, as I did in two instances, actually meet the children that um, were scheduled to be aborted and that and that um, appointment was canceled as a result of outreach. So. 
these 20, these 20 staff members. Now, I, I, one of the things I like to do on this podcast, because we cover all these life and family issues, is to kind of introduce people to the practicality uh, as well as the vision. So what does uh, your day-to-day look like? And what would the day-to-day of, of, of you know, one of your 20 staff members look like? Because a lot of people, I remember my grandfather asking me, uh, um, what, what's, what's that for a job? Like, what do you actually do, right? Because, uh, you know, being a, being a, pro, a full-time pro-life activist is not something many people are familiar with. So maybe give us a sense of what it actually looks like if you were to choose a career with Protect Life Michigan. Fantastic. So a lot of what we do, like I said, is working with young people. So during the school year, we are on campus every single day, either doing trainings with students or meeting with them. We do these things called coffee chats, where we take students out just to get to know them better and try to inspire them to get deeper, get more involved. Um, Maybe they're afraid to do outreach. We want to get them to do more outreach. Um, We lead outreaches on campus and in the community. So we're doing that on a weekly basis as well. Um, Right now, we're in our summer months. Uh, We just wrapped up on campus. So now we're doing a little bit of support raising, maintenance, calling people to say thank you, reconnecting with them. But the part that's really fun about summer is we are a very innovative organization, which means all summer long, we're basically creating our game plan for fall. We do competitions where we break into groups and have people try to brainstorm new forms of outreaches, or uh, we this year want to pilot something called like a campus blitz. The first month, we want to have like 40 volunteers per campus that are just going crazy with getting the pro-life message out there. So we're coming up with these new ideas all the time too and working on plans to implement them. So I always tell people, if you're going to come work at Protect Life Michigan, you want to be someone who really likes change because no two days look the same. No two years look the same. We're always chasing after what is the next big thing we need to do to be more impactful? How can we grow? How can we expand? Um, So you have to like change. You have to be innovative because like you said, if there is something out there that is better than what we're currently doing, we owe it to the unborn to figure out what that is and go after it. Um, So innovation, change, we work hard and really try to own what we do. Like every school is different. So you kind of have to create a custom game plan to reach the students at a Christian school or a Hillsdale college versus Michigan state university or university of Michigan, where I went, where um, I think it's probably like 95% pro choice, (laughs) but um, so I would say most days we're out meeting with students. Um, if we're not, we're we're back in the office brainstorming better ways to do that. One of the things I'm curious about in your experience, especially because you've been doing this uh, so long, is I find that there's a difference between what recruits um, girls versus what recruits guys, and they often stay in for different reasons. Now. What I'm about to say is 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 a generality because um, I've worked I've worked with a lot of girls who are as much warrior as any of the guys that I worked with, but then I worked uh, I worked with a lot of girls who were involved in the pro life movement because they had like such a heart for the unborn. Like I remember uh, one of one of our team members. Um, we heard crying downstairs at one of the houses where our interns were housed. We went downstairs and she was sitting on a big pile of postcards. Um, and she was sobbing and, and my colleague asked her like, like what's wrong? And she just said, whose idea was it to rip up babies anyway? And she was just so grieved and torn apart by what this was all about. 
And then we had a lot of guys whose response to that was it offended their protective instinct. It made them angry and it made them want to fight where there's, you know, a victim that's being protected from a dragon, you know, at Jordan Peterson mythology, you can go through the whole thing. There's a biblical case uh, that explains it as well. So again, this is a generality because I've, I've seen, I've seen guys and girls um, have different reactions to it, but I was wondering if, if you saw any difference between what really motivates and inspires the guys versus what motivates and inspires the girls, or if it's pretty standard across the board. It's hard to say. I think um, everyone has their own reasons. And we talk about this a lot on our team. Like, how do you stay inspired, especially on the weeks where you spend a lot of time behind your computer typing away, like what keeps you fighting? I think that, um, we have seen a lot more guys get involved since we've started doing more outreach because I think it's that tangible impact. Like you said, that feeling like you're protecting, you're fighting, you're a warrior that really does make a difference. But I see that in a lot of, we have a lot of feisty women <laughs> that are with us on staff or uh, in the students as well. So um, I think it's probably all across the board, but I think ultimately, as I keep saying, the fact that you're doing something with your time, with your energy, your talents and resources, where you can see a tangible impact. I think whether you're a man or a woman, that really speaks to someone's heart. We're so dismayed by everything happening in the world around us today. But on the abortion issue, there is real change being made. And um, I think everyone has a desire to be a part of something like that. So just because this is a question that almost everybody needs to be asked at this stage in the game, how, how did you guys weather the, the COVID-19 crisis, especially because if I'm not mistaken, your, your governor had you guys pretty much locked in your houses for a couple of months. Although I do see that she just apologized for breaking her own rules. So that's fun. Well, yeah, that one was rough. It's been a week for her, I think. But uh, yeah, here in Michigan, we've had some pretty strict lockdowns and measures taken by the governor um, at times worse, like the worst in the nation. In fact, I just had a guy visit here from California who was like, I was so excited to leave California where it's been so restricted. I had no idea it was going to be worse in Michigan. Um, so I'll choose my words carefully here and say we we bent the rules at times um, through COVID. There were a lot of universities that had lockdowns in place. They told students, I mean, we had students at a few schools who were told that if they left their dorm rooms, they could get a fine or they could be suspended or even expelled. Um, and there were students that still went out and did community outreach with us despite that. Now they probably didn't wear their college t-shirt when they did, <laughs> um, but nothing held them back. So we really like going into it said, if abortion doesn't stop, neither do we. We are not going to slow down on outreach. We're not gonna slow down on training. We wanted to be in person as much as possible. So a lot of our meetings ended up being hybrid. We'd be in person and then people could zoom in if they wanted to. But I worked at Michigan State University this last year with that student group. And we just met in a church on campus since we couldn't have a classroom. And we would do our outreach directly across the street from campus instead of on campus. Same, same group of students, just uh, about 20 feet further away. Um, and so essentially, we weren't going to let this prevent us from changing minds and saving lives. What we're doing is too important. And so we just continued to find safe, safe ways to do it, no matter what the rules were at the time. 
I just want to double back to something you said a little bit earlier, because I think this is important for those trying to understand the pro-life movement. When you said, you know, people trying to figure out how to stay motivated day by day. And I think a lot of pro-life activists go through this because when you join, it's all new. Uh, and you're experiencing all these incredible things and you're seeing minds change and it's a real high, but people get used to anything. So I remember, I remember like the first couple of years on campus, every time I got a philosophy major, I'm like, this is great, right? Philosophy majors taste like chicken. It's more fun. You know, working through those arguments, they're more complicated, but like five or six years in, they would just irritate me. Cause I'm like, I don't want to spend a half an hour talking to you when I can talk to three people who are more likely to change their mind, but I'm going to waste it talking through some analogy that you thought up that you think profound when actually it's just a total waste of all of our time um and so you you know you end up kind of getting sick of certain things and you have to sort of readjust and you get used to different things and one of the things i've said a lot in in meetings to to pro-lifers who are realizing three or four years in that it's not always the same high it's not always you know the adrenaline rush it's not always as exciting as it was before that it's kind of like the difference between dating the pro-life movement and being committed to it sometimes you're committed to something um, because you're committed to it, not just because everything's new and fresh and exciting each individual time. So you do it because you know what's true, you know what's effective, as long as you're constantly testing to ensure that that is in fact the case. But just like the difference between dating and marriage, um, your commitment is really what matters at the end of the day. Uh, how do you guys actually keep yourselves committed, keep your eyes on the prize, keep focus on what actually matters and get your team through, uh, especially like during COVID, I know that uh, for a period there, not only your group, but a whole bunch of groups were having a pretty rough time. Yeah. The first thing we do is hire you. <laughs> um, I think you have blessed the pro-life movement in many ways, but something you're really good at, Jonathan, is helping bring people back to that and just re-inspire that commitment. So there can be times when I'm just like so tired by the fact that I'm fighting this day in and day out. Um, but, you know, either cracking open your book or having you present to my team has been something that has really helped us. And if other organizations are listening, I would encourage them to bring you in to do just that. So I think tapping into people who can really encourage the soul again is a very important thing. Um, there are times we just start our meetings as a team by watching a quick video clip that's going to remind us. Some, sometimes we even watch abortion videos because we need to have it hit us hard again so that we can remember how hard it is um, uh, and the reality of the injustice out there. So I think I, I actually pull my team in to do this at different points because I think what each person needs is different. And so, you know, what Rebecca Cooper or Rebecca Punches is going to bring to the team is going to be different than what Kristen Polo does. But um, I think it's a very important thing because you're, you're exactly right. There are going to be times where we we're tired. And I think especially in the pro-life movement, there's a lot of people who are saying like, we're the generation who's going to end abortion. I don't want our age group and our generation to lose hope if that's not the case. We need to fight through to the end, whether abortion ends tomorrow or in another 80 years. We have to have that steady commitment. And, and sometimes that's hard to do. Yeah, I would like to state for the listeners that I did not know you were going to say that, although I do very much appreciate <laughs> that. When you say the marathon, I believe Scott Klusendorf said that on this podcast as well, that we really do have to prepare for the marathon because 
every single one of us would be lying if, if if we said we didn't want the Wilberforce moment where, you know, he collapses weeping in Parliament as he sees the work of 20 years finally culminate. Or, you know, the Lincoln moment where he hears the church bells ringing across Washington, D.C. and realizes that his constitutional amendment to ban slavery uh, has finally passed. But there's a reason those stories are so exceptional. It's because they were the exception. And in, in reality, history is actually filled with legions of unnamed people who who struggled for the right reasons and to save lives. And that that reward was good enough. So I pray, and I know all of you do as well, that we do get to see a day like that. However, uh, we have to I, we have to realize that the reward for doing this is the lives saved and the minds changed, which is why I really do think pro-life activists sometimes need to do a better job celebrating those changes, to not just see them as a means to an end. No, each person was the end, right? Each baby that gets saved, that was the end in and of itself. That mind that you changed when you went out on campus, that was the end of that day. Like that was the end for the day. That's why you went out and did it. So yes, you hope all these anecdotes create a statistical trend that drives the culture towards making abortion illegal and protecting preborn children. But that is something we hope will happen as a result of what we're doing. It's not actually the goal. Our goal is to change people's people's hearts and minds. And, and pro-lifers are really, really good at beating up on themselves and and never and not and sometimes almost not believing their own rhetoric about how every single life is precious and created in the image of God. Because if we truly believed that, then maybe we would stop and and be more awed when a baby is saved from abortion. Does that make sense? It does. And something that this is just something that we've been going through here recently in the last few months. I have talked to so many of our supporters and our partners who have just felt like they have lost all hope. You know, here in uh, Michigan and in America, there are so many people in office right now, in political offices, who do not support our values. And they are working hard every single day to make sure that pro-life values are stripped away and that we're taken back a step. And a lot of people feel very hopeless right now because of that. And um, I've been asked many times over the last few months, how do you stay encouraged in moments like this where it seems like maybe we're backtracking? And the reality is that my work and what God has called me to do here with Protect Life Michigan does not change no matter who is in office. It doesn't change no matter what the laws are we have to continue to fight for those lives. And that's true whether Roe falls, you know, next year or in 1550, whatever, however long it is, our mission is still the same to change hearts, to save lives. And like you said, hopefully we get to that point, but we can't lose hope when there's setbacks um, because this is a long game that we're playing. It is a marathon. There's going to be wins and losses, uh, but every single life, if that is able to be saved is is worth the work that we're putting in to say that. No, that, that's a great point because I've actually often said I, I, I have incredible respect for those who work in the political sphere because people often think, oh, they have they have the really cushy job, right? You know, they get invited to the White House or to Parliament. They get to, you know, meet in the politician's office and go to cocktail receptions. But at the end of the day, when their guy loses, their guy lost. And, you know, months or years of work just went out the window. We never have a single instance of outreach where we go home and think, well, that was a waste of time or there went all of that work. It's always worth it. And so like the the consistency 
um, of the reward that that outreach does, I think is is actually more rewarding than than political work because we never wait. I never ever feel like our effort was wasted, um, and and that's 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 really incredibly helpful in understanding that you know each each individual life, each individual hour is is really worth putting the work in, and 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 it's interesting because politicians, pro-lifers have to be careful not to outsource um, our job to the politicians either, right? Because it's very easy for people to stay at home and say, well, you know, the congressman or the senator, you know, or, or you know, the or the executive, like it's their job to do this. Well, there's a lot of babies out there who, who yes, all babies need legal protections, but there are some babies that just need you. And when you go out onto campus, when you go on the street and you talk to somebody and she changes her mind, decides not to have an abortion, um, that baby didn't have a law to protect his or her life, but that baby had you. And it turns out you were good enough. Um, it worked, and 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 that was actually that was actually blessed to, to save that baby's life. So I think I think pro-lifers sometimes have to just remember: all babies need laws, but some babies need you, and you better be out there making sure you're talking to people so that that those who are considering abortions and those babies who could be saved are saved by your work. Yeah, there are so many people who see abortion as a political issue, and I hear that all the time on campus when we ask, "What do you think about abortion?" They're like, "Oh, well, I'm not really into politics." <laughs> But again, there are so many pieces of this movement and they're all important. We need legal protections. We have to keep fighting for that. But at the same time, we need pregnancy centers. We need outreach organizations. We need people who are working with young people and old people and everywhere in between. That's how we're going to under overcome the culture that we're in. That's how we're going to win this battle if we continue to fight it on all fronts. It's a lot more than just politics. Final question for all of our listeners who are interested, where can they find uh, the work of Protect Like Michigan on, on social media? What's your website? Just let us let people know where they can get in touch with you. Yeah, wherever you are, if you're not in Michigan, you're in some other state or maybe another country, I would encourage you to follow us on social media if you are on social media, because we post encouraging stories and photos and video from campus every single day. And I think people need that encouragement. They need hope. Um, and so you can find us at Protect Life MI. That's our handle on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We're on TikTok now. <laughs> um, and then if you'd like to check out our website, you can go to protectlifemi.org. But again, I would really encourage you to follow along. We want to show you what it's like to actually be on campus and have you hear and see the stories of real people who are making real change um, in a place where it's so important to do so. Well, Chris, and thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all of your work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Kristen Paulo of Protect Life Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us today. We do hope you'll go over to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe and you can catch up with past shows or sign up for previous shows. We're telling the stories of members of the pro-life movement. We're analyzing abortion in countries around the world. We're looking at life and family issues, and we do hope you'll take the time to join us. Thanks so much for listening this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.